The Book of Genesis. In the first video, we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all things, and he makes humans in his image to rule the world on his behalf. The humans choose sin and rebellion, and so the world spins out of control into violence and death, all leading up to the rebellion and scattering of the people in Babylon. And so the big question is, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world? Well, out of that scattering at Babylon, the author traces a genealogy of just one family that leads eventually to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 opens up a whole new movement in the story. God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, which God says will become his one day. And in that land, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to make his name great, and to bless him. Now, these promises are connected back to earlier parts of the book. So Babylon had arrogantly tried to make a great name for itself, and that didn't go over very well. But God, in his generosity, is going to bestow a great name on this no-name guy, Abraham. And God's blessing of Abraham echoes all the way back to that original blessing God gave humanity in the beginning. So the question is, why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? And the last line of God's promise makes this clear. So that all the families of the earth will find God's blessing in you. Now this is key for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And this is why the whole rest of the Old Testament story is just going to focus on this one family, eventually called the people of Israel. This is also why Israel will later be called a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. God wants to use them to show all of the other nations what he's like. And ultimately, this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets and poets who say that its fulfillment will come through Israel's messianic king, whose reign will bring justice and peace to all of the nations. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we're going to be focusing on one of the, um, one of the darkest and, and really kind of most disturbing stories that you find in the Old Testament, the, the binding and the sacrifice of Isaac. So we're picking up at the very end of Genesis 21, the very last two verses in uh, 21, 21 verse 33. So Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In both Hebrew and Greek, the, the same word is used to describe uh, testing, which is sort of a positive thing to build you up, 
and temptation, which is something that ensnares you and tears you down. Same word in the original language. In fact, the King James Version of this verse says, God tempted Abraham, not God tested Abraham. So in a way, this story points forward to Jesus' temptation and testing in the wilderness, which was meant to strengthen him so he could emerge from the wilderness ready to begin his ministry. Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden was also a testing. It's one that they failed. Abraham's testing is also a temptation. And it's one that he will successfully resist. Every testing is a temptation. Every temptation is a testing. Each time we're faced with a temptation or a test, it's an opportunity to grow, to become stronger, to emerge from the other side, ready to face whatever God has next for us. This particular testing follows this moment of clarity. Abraham has just reached a peace settlement with the nearby peoples. It ensures his safety and his ownership of the land that God had promised to him. And he has the clarity and the presence of mind to stop and recognize that this was only possible with God. And so he plants a tree and he worships in recognition of God's provision. And now he's ready to face the next test. It's kind of like playing a video game. You know, not that I, you know, not that many of you do that, but lots of games are designed so that each level has one final enemy to defeat, right? The boss. And if it's a well-designed game, the boss is the most challenging enemy you face, and, and you have to use some specific skill or ability or item that's been acquired in that level to defeat him, and you're not ready to move on to the next level until you can do that. Once you've done it, though, you're ready to go forward. Tests and temptations in the Bible work the same way. When, you, when the person in the story has learned something about God or about themselves, or they've had some sort of epiphany or a transformative moment, that's when the temptation hits. And God still does this to us today. God tests us when we've acquired new knowledge, new skills, because those things are actually worthless to us if we aren't able to put them to use. See, too often we think of God as just like the CEO, right? He's up there in his office in the skies, and he's just kind of directing things from afar. But, but God is actually deeply involved with what goes on in the world. God isn't just actively protecting and providing for us. He's also actively teaching us and guiding us and shaping us. He helps us to grow and to improve. And so, when we're ready we will be tested and tempted. Abraham had just acknowledged that God had been faithful to his promise of giving Abraham the land. Now it's time to see just how well he's learned the lesson. He he refers to God as the everlasting God. In Hebrew, the phrase is El Olam, which is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. It means God of the ages, and the implication is God has been God for as far back as anyone can remember, and he will continue to be Abraham's God forever. And he's got every reason to think that, doesn't he? He's got the land God promised him. He's got the son God promised him. He's at peace. God's given him everything he's ever wanted. Why shouldn't he have faith? But that's exactly the problem. He's never been given a reason to doubt Every time he's stepped out in faith, he's been rewarded almost immediately. So God devises a test. There's a lot of old Jewish literature 
related to this story in the Talmud. And in one story, Satan appears to Abraham as he's on his way to the mountain and tempts him to sacrifice a lamb instead of Isaac. And he has to resist that temptation. In another story, Satan points out to him how implausible it is that God would bless him with a son in his old age and then expect Abraham to sacrifice him. Satan points out it doesn't make sense. Not only that, it's immoral. How could a good and loving God demand that you do that? But Abraham knows he's heard God speak and he must resist those temptations. Imagine that. Imagine being faced with temptations that seem more kind, more loving, and more moral than the commands of God. Could you resist? Have you resisted? Isaac is not only Abraham's son. He is the son through whom God has explicitly told him that the promise of his descendants will be fulfilled. And now, it seems like God himself is endangering that promise. So we come to verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Have you ever wondered what it would do to you to see your own father prepared to kill you? to know he was going to do it, barring divine intervention. I really wonder what Isaac thought of his father after this, and I wonder what their relationship was like. I wonder how this affected Abraham's marriage, because you can bet Sarah wasn't very happy. The story doesn't tell us any of these things because it's focused on Abraham, on his willingness to obey God, even when God tells him to do something completely unthinkable even when what God wants from him goes against all his feelings as a father. Jesus tells his disciples no one can truly follow him unless they hate their father and mother, their brothers and sisters, their wives and their children, and even life itself. It's harsh, and it doesn't always sound right to us, but the reality is that God does demand a degree of of loyalty and obedience that transcends death itself and all earthly bonds. This story should change our our understanding of our relationship to God because most often we think of it in terms of us, right? What we need, what we want, what we think God should do for us. 
And this story turns it all on its head and reminds us that it's ultimately about God, what God wants us to do, what God intends to do for us and for all of creation. My faith is not about fulfilling my longings or resolving my fears. It's all about submitting to God and being an instrument for his purposes in the world. And that does not mean that you can't ask God to help us or that we can't let God know what we want or even demand that God do things for us when it seems right to us. But it does mean that when push comes to shove, God is God and we are not. And sometimes we have to be reminded of that. Abraham must have been up all night. I mean, there is just no way a father could sleep the night before doing something like this. But he tells the people with him that he and Isaac are going to go worship and that they'll come back. He's going to kill Isaac, but he assumes that somehow, some way, his son will still be with him at the end of the day. Maybe he thinks God's going to raise him back from the dead. Maybe he just is referring to bringing the body back with him. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. And then he binds him on the altar. And there is a lot of reading between the lines in that part of the story, because wouldn't you think he would struggle? Surely he didn't just go along with it. I mean, imagine having to physically subdue your own child and tie them up all knowing, without knowing exactly why you had to do it, without understanding what the purpose was or what God intended. It's only when Abraham has made it inescapably clear that he's going to go through with it, that God intervenes. Isaac is bound and helpless. He is just about to plunge the knife into his chest when the angel stops him. There is no backing down at this point. There's no turning back. He is fully committed to this course of action. He couldn't have been faking it. He might have been hoping that morning that God would somehow spare his son, but God doesn't do so until it's perfectly clear that Abraham is going to go through with it. So we come to verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. We are naturally horrified at the thought of Abraham binding his son and preparing to sacrifice him. In fact, we're we're generally horrified at the thought of child sacrifice in general, and rightly so. But we shouldn't imagine that we're much different. Our culture doesn't kill children on altars, but we're content to send them off to war, aren't we? We'll send an 18-year-old into combat and, and hail him as a hero when he dies, and we'll say to justify that he knew the risks when he joined the military. 
And you'll say that that's different from child sacrifice. And, and from our perspective, that's very true. But in a world where everyone practiced child sacrifice and where everyone believed that sometimes you had to offer exactly such a sacrifice to appease the gods, to prevent them from unleashing their wrath on all the world, you probably wouldn't view those sacrificial victims very differently from the way we view young soldiers. You would probably view them as noble heroes making a sacrifice for the greater good, giving their lives to protect others. So maybe Isaac didn't struggle on the altar, maybe because he saw things just like that. Maybe that's how he understood his fate. Maybe that's part of why Abraham is willing to go through with it, and maybe that's why God never asks something like this from anyone ever again. Because they're all too willing to go through with it. This story is not meant to give us an example of something we should or should not do. In fact, this story tells us that God emphatically does not want that kind of sacrifice because he's looked that idea in the face and he's rejected it. He's ruled it out altogether. This is a story of God's unique relationship to Abraham, and it's something that will never be repeated except for one other time. There is one other example in Scripture of a father who sacrifices his son, with the key difference being that this father goes through with it. God sacrifices his son on the cross. He does what he would not allow Abraham to do. Abraham passes his test. Now God knows exactly how much Abraham reveres him. And it's one thing to say that you love God. It's quite another to show it. None of us will ever demonstrate the depth and strength of our love for God and just like Abraham did, except for Jesus on the cross. Like it or not, we all face tests and temptations, and we struggle to pass them because we struggle to take the things we know about God and actually put them into practice. We struggle to live according to what we believe. God doesn't test us because he's capricious or devious. He isn't out to get us. He's not doing it to try and trip us up or get us to fail. He's doing it to help us grow. He's doing it so we can be better. All of us who are parents, we do this with our kids, don't we? Right? We, we push them to do things that might be difficult or scary because we know they need to do it to grow, to mature, to learn how to be independent, to learn how to function in the world. Even with our three-year-old, we do this, right? We make her feed the dog. She has to put her clothes away in the hamper. She even vacuums. She, she hates it. You know, she resists it every time. But we make her do it anyway because she needs to learn how to do things around the house. She needs to learn how to contribute and how to be a part of the family and a part of the household. God wants us to grow. God is teaching us, guiding us, preparing us for a future with him. He's shaping us into the kind of people we need to be if we're going to be with him forever. He's preparing us for his future. He's teaching us to trust in him in all circumstances. He's teaching us to be content in all circumstances. In this story, he's saying to Abraham, okay, Abraham, do you trust me? Yeah? How much? Anyone can say that they trust you, but it's an easy thing to say, and it's an easy thing to believe about yourself when there's nothing at stake. It's meaningless until you find yourself having to actually trust in God. On Thursday, my wife and I celebrated our 10th anniversary, and I know what you're all thinking. She can do better. You know that, I know that. She hasn't figured it out yet, so don't tell her. 
we took the same vows most of you did, right? We, we vowed to stay together for richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness, sand, and health. Now, we have not experienced richer yet. Uh, maybe someday, who knows? But we've been through all the other ones, and we came out stronger for it. These are really simple vows that we do in our wedding ceremonies, but they're very powerful, and actually they're pretty ironclad. They cover everything except infidelity and abuse. I wonder how many of us actually thought about what we were saying when we took those vows. I wonder how many marriages have fallen apart because people didn't take those vows seriously, or, or perhaps because they truly thought they meant it when they took those vows, but when push came to shove, they realized they didn't. We never know if we were serious about vows like that until they're put to the test. And in every marriage, they will be. You will have bad times. You will face sickness. You will have financial hardship. It's guaranteed. Everyone goes through these things. You will have times where you don't like each other. And sometimes it's not just momentary. Sometimes it's days or weeks. Can you choose to love someone still at that point? You will have times when your spouse does something that hurts you or sometimes they just annoy the bejesus out of you, right? Um, (laughs) These are the times when your vows are tested. In the last decade, our vows have been tested. Now, not severely. It's not like we've had 10 years of tragedy and constant hardship. You know, mostly we've faced smaller things, right? We've, we've had times when one or both of us has been facing massive stress and we haven't put any effort into our marriage as a result. We've had times when the marriage has felt stale or unexciting. We've had times when we didn't like each other very much. And each time, we've kept our vows. And our marriage has emerged stronger for it. And we have emerged as better, stronger, and more mature people because of it. Now, that does not mean that we have it all figured out or that we have a perfect marriage or that we can just rest easy and assume that we're never going to be in trouble or that there won't be more difficult tests to come. All it means is that I know from experience that having your commitment tested, while very unpleasant, is ultimately a good thing. Abraham made a covenant with God, very much like the covenant of marriage. Part of that covenant requires that he trust in God, and this is his ultimate test, and he passes. We are each part of that same covenant. It's carried on through his descendants, and through Jesus, it's extended to us. God will test us so that he can grow us. But it's not as if he asks us to do things that he himself won't do. God has put himself on the line. Abraham did not, in the end, have to sacrifice Isaac. God stopped him. But nobody stopped the soldiers nailing Jesus to the cross. God went through with the sacrifice. He did not make Abraham offer. When everything was on the line, God upheld his vows to us. May we have the strength and the faith to do the same. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. My friends, would you stand with me as